You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now... Here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, everybody, welcome back. Hopefully everybody had a great weekend. I got to spend a lot of time with the family, and I got to do some whitetail stuff as well. Let's see, I'm recording this on a Sunday. So earlier today, I went down to uh, one of the properties that I hunt, and I did my what I call my trail camera switch, where I pull them off of the mineral stations and I put them in pinch points, travel corridors, fence crossings, inside corners, uh, you know, just high traffic areas, uh, some, some field edges, but not a lot. And, uh, I did a little bit of scouting as well today. Saw, uh, my first scrape of the year, um, saw a couple, a very small hard horned buck. Uh, which for some reason seems very early for me. Maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, confused on when these deer actually strip their velvet. But anyway, uh, I got a lot done today, and uh, I'm in the process of checking my trail camera cards. And uh, I I think I'm gonna have a pretty good year. Uh, the number of mature deer and what I consider mature is four years of age or older and that right there i think i i think i counted maybe five or six on trail camera today um and then maybe two in the seven you know the the six seven range some some pretty mature deer so i'm really happy with what i have now like i've said before on oh i'd say about the 15th somewhere around the 15th of september there's a shift where Everything kind of disperses. The the food sources may change, and then there's another shift uh, when the crops come out. And uh, I tell you what, when I was walking through some cornfields today um, in some of these buffer strips, I saw some really good sign that made me think about trying to get into some of these cornfields and find a way I'm talking I saw beds all over the place but trying to find a location or tree in the middle of some of these crop fields in these buffer strips maybe put a blind up maybe get into a a tree that's in a fence row 
that still has a lot of leaves on it, and that could be your cover. But I know that there are a lot of deer living in some of these ag fields, uh, even just living in the buffer strips. And the, the beds that I found today prove that. But trying to find a way to get in there and hunt one of these uh, um, ag fields before the season comes out or before the uh, crops come out. And I really think that would be a way to hunt early and not necessarily pressure the deer because if you do jump one of these deer uh, in, in, in this ag field, then I'm not really doing any harm because their habitat is going to change when the crops come out anyway. So that's just an idea I had floating around in my head that, you know, if you want to go hard and heavy right off the bat early season, I think if you could maybe find some late daylight movement, you you might be able to, uh, you know, get a crack at something uh, living in one of these cornfields. So, Something I'm going to have to think think about, that not necessarily this year because, you know, the baby's coming and that's going to not allow me to hunt early, early season. So I did get some stuff done this weekend. I hung a lot of trail cameras up. I'm ready. So, like, I'm 100% ready now uh, for the most part. I still have to shoot my bow uh, and get that, you know, continually shoot my bow and get better at that. But I have, let me, I'm thinking right now. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven trail cameras out right now. And uh, I tell you what, they're going to soak for the next month and a half until I can get out and check them again. And uh, we'll see what's what's moving. Some of them probably don't won't even get checked until... Uh, November. So when I'm out there actually uh, uh, hunting uh, and I run across them, I will. But, you know, the information that is on those trail cameras probably won't be beneficial until the following year. Anyway, I'm rambling now. Today's podcast is really kick-ass and I'll tell you why. When we say hunt the wind, we think of, okay, the weather channel tells us that the wind is out of the north. So, we play the wind that way. But today's guest, Ryan Fuhrer, he actually works for the QDMA, and he did a speech at the uh, convention about thermals, wind direction, air current, and how terrain kind of affects all that. So we spend a majority of this podcast talking about thermals, wind direction, terrain features, air current, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's really educational. I tell you what, you will definitely learn a lot from this podcast. We also discuss a little bit about what he does at the uh, QDMA uh, and uh, his roles there. We get into detail a little bit about the QDMA uh, Association. So it's uh, a really awesome podcast. You guys are going to love it. Now, I've been using a Ripcord Aerorest man. I can't even tell you, like 2007 or 6 or something like that. But uh, it is a badass rest. And I have, this year was the first year that I got a new one since I bought my original one. And it worked every single time. And that was 
with it wet, freezing and thawing conditions, uh, you know, dirt and grime in it and, you know, not necessarily really doing any maintenance to it for five years or six years. I, maybe even longer, I had that rest and it performed flawlessly every single time and it's made in America. So, uh, that's a big plus too. If you guys want to find out more information about ripcord arrest, please visit ripcordarrowrest.com and uh, check out their selection of arrowrests. So, enough of me talking into this damn microphone. Let's get into today's podcast with Ryan Fuhrer. All right, everyone. I had the pleasure of meeting our next guest, today's guest, uh, Ryan Fuhrer at the Quality Deer Management Association uh, Bash at the Bayou uh, earlier this year. And uh, I would like to welcome Ryan to the podcast. How are you doing today, Ryan? Uh, good, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, how's, uh, how's life? Life is good, uh, busy, but uh, you know it's that time of year for us. It's it's coming almost, uh, as I like to call it, hard hard horn season. So uh, things get pretty hectic in QDMA land, that's for sure. Right, right, and that's kind of a transition. Um, you work for the Quality Deer Management Association, correct? I do. Yes. Okay. What what's your role there? I am the senior regional director, uh, field staff coordinator for the Quality Deer Management Association. So basically, I oversee. Uh, all the regional directors uh, throughout the country. And is that, you know, basically spreading the word of Q- QDMA to, you know, basically just like a chain of command? You're, if any changes come from the top, you distribute the, that information to, the, uh, to your peers? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, the regional directors work directly with the volunteers throughout the country. So we're, you know, basic grassroots conservation yeah. organization. Gotcha. Uh, so anything that kind of happens in the field via the the volunteers has to go through a regional director, um, whether it be merchandise ordering, educational events, youth hunts, you know, mentored hunts, and so 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 forth. Um, all that needs coordinated. Uh, so <clears throat> everything that happens out there kind of goes through them, and I I help them with secondary events, leadership conferences, obviously planning national convention, um, and just about anything. You know, there's a uh, there's no cookie cutter uh, college curriculum spitting out regional directors or <laughs> or uh, you know, leaders for nonprofit organizations. Every day is something a little different. Absolutely makes a lot Kinda of sense. Unique. Right now, you know, for people who want to know what the Quality Deer Management Association is, um, you can go to the Quality Deer Management Association website, QDMA website, and there's a ton of information. Uh, out there now one thing that i learned uh from the like meeting you guys down there and talking with uh, a lot of you guys down there when i was in new orleans is that my first impression of the qdma was well i don't own any land i don't lease any property so i i'm not directly involved with um you know quote unquote managing the deer population so tell me why I was wrong thinking that and tell me about, you know, you know, why someone who is not a landowner does not lease property should still be a member of the quality deer management association. 
Yeah, that's a good question. You know, man, that we get that a lot. Uh, there's a huge misconception out there of, of what or who QDMA is. Um, a lot of people you know, confuse us with trophy deer management and think, you know, we're, we're all about the big antlers and, and that's right. not the case at all. Um, sometimes that may be a byproduct of a, of a quality or, or a healthy deer herd, but by no means is that the, uh, you know, the, the, the end goal it's for a healthy herd. Uh, you know, coincidentally, if you have a healthy deer herd, you usually end up with an older age class of bucks, which obviously have big antlers. Um, right. As far as the land goes, man, yeah, that's another big misconception. You know, I've heard so many times that, you know, we're the group for the big, rich landowners. And although we do have some of those, I think, you know, I don't want to quote me on this, but I think there's only like a third of our membership actually own more than 15 or 20 acres, something like that. It's not very much. Um, matter of fact, most of our most of our land or our memberships uh, don't own any land at all. Um and our CEO, Brian Murphy, I think he owns less than three acres. So, you know, it's, it's one, it's one of those deals where, uh, it's just a misconception, you know, over time we're working on our 30th year. I think a lot of the habitat work we've done and, the, and a lot of the education we've done revolves around managing your land, but yeah, we're by no means, you know, for the big, you know, rich landowner strictly, um, you know, we're for anybody that's buying a hunting license. Um, there's somewhere between, yeah, I've heard as low as 11 million and as high as 13 million deer hunters in the country, give or take who's, you know, whoever's doing accounting at that time. But, uh, right. you know, if you're buying a deer license, chances are we're doing something for you, whether it be on the advocacy side, obviously disease is a big issue right now with CWD and EHD. Uh, we're very heavily involved in that research and education on that end. Uh, we do a lot of, a lot of work with the state agencies, you know, a lot of communicating back and forth educating the volunteers, which in turn educates the community on their local deer herd. So, uh, you know, if you're buying a deer license, like I say, chances are we're, we're doing something for you, you know, especially if you're passionate about a healthy deer herd or a quality deer herd, um, right. you know, uh, uh, habitat wise, you know, I mean, we have so many people that like to manage, you know, the, the state game lands that they hunt just to make it better. We have, we have chapters and branches, if you will, that uh, in Pennsylvania alone, where I'm from, I'm, I think right now we're managing about 120 acres of habitat management or food plots on state game lands, um, you know, trying to enhance that quality so that people that don't own property uh, can enjoy a little bit of better hunting. Right. Yeah, that makes uh, that makes good sense. Now, um, I don't know if you know this right off the top of your head, but do you know what uh, a membership to the QDMA costs? $35. Is that a year or is that a one-time fee? That's a $35 a year. That gets you six issues to quality whitetail, an aging deer on a hoof DVD, and uh, I think maybe a knife or a lapel pin. But, yeah, it's $35 for, for the year, which, the, in my opinion, the quality whitetails magazine that we put out, it's, uh, it's well worth that for sure. Right. It's one of, right. the best, one of the best magazines out there if, if you're interested in uh, you know, the facts, because we are a science-based organization. Right, absolutely. So outside of, you know, your $35 goes to get you a magazine and some kind of pen and uh, a DVD, but what else, what other benefits are there from being a QDMA member? Oh, it's endless, really. Um, you know, it kind of opens up your world to – just becoming a member and more importantly, being involved with a branch. If you can find a local branch or you can get on our website, you know, look up, we have a map. 
uh, you know, you can look up the closest branch on your maps uh, or on our website to you. Uh, the education, uh, the deer steward models that we offer, we can do DS, deer steward one, which is uh, basically a college course, college type course that's an entry level into a little bit of wildlife biology, a little bit of habitat management. It's a, it kind of covers all bases and we can do that online or in person. And then you can go on to deer steward two, which is an in person uh, it's usually at a destination type place. Had them at the Lee and Tiffany's farm in Iowa, Jeff Foxworthy's ranch in Georgia. Uh, I can't, you know, I can't think of all the playground, which is place out of Missouri. Um, you know, we really cool places that are under strict habitat management programs. And, and, uh, it's a really rigid, you know, four day course with a test at the end that, uh, Man, you come out of that, uh, you know, if you go into it thinking you knew what you were talking about, you come out of it with a little bit of a different attitude and, and feeling a whole lot better for sure. Um, you know, being involved with the branch on a local level, uh, we do all sorts of things uh, throughout the country as far as education is concerned, habitat management, education on habitat management, um, youth hunts, and now more importantly, uh, the Share Your Hunt program. Uh, we've identified as of late, uh, you know, there are, where we used to focus on getting the youth involved and mentoring a, a new youth, you know, we've kind of identified and in, in the industry has identified that there are a lot of mid 40 somethings, if you will, that uh, maybe have the desire to hunt, but not the ability or the access. So right. uh, we're encouraging our branches to seek out and find those people that want to go hunting, no matter, regardless of their age. And uh, yeah, Hey, take them hunting, take a new person hunting. Uh, we're trying to start an initiative right now, just amongst ourselves uh, within the organization challenging ourselves to take a new person hunting this year, introduce them to the outdoors. And it may be as simple as just sharing a, a, a venison meal with them. You know, that kind of opens the door. Um, you know, food's like the gateway of, uh, you know, gatherings, if you will. Or, you know, everything happens around a good meal. And, right. you know, whether it be a wild turkey or venison or maybe even a fish fry, uh, that can kind of open a door to somebody that may have an interest but, you know, never really – had the avenue, if you will, to, to go down that road. So uh, we're, we're really encouraging that. We're really trying to get behind that, uh, especially on the local level. Uh, you know, in the next five years, we'd like to do our part to introduce an, a million new hunters to the outdoors. So that'd be pretty cool if we could do that. And our branches are pretty focused on that, you know, moving forward. So uh, as far as, you know, what you can get out of being a member, it, it honestly is endless. It's, it's like anything else you get out of it, you know, kind of what you want or what you put into it um you know if you just kind of you know buy the membership and flip through the magazine and, and throw it off in the corner and yeah hey it is what it is you know thanks for your support and we're glad you know about us but if you really want to get involved you know you can get involved to just about any, any degree that you'd like to right yeah definitely mm -hmm. uh something i you know i learned a lot uh about the qdma uh just from going and talking with you guys down in new Orleans. But, uh, you know, through that, I would recommend anybody, uh, take advantage of the $35 a year, especially if you're an avid outdoors person and an outdoors man and an outdoors woman. If you like to hunt, whether it's one week a year or, you know, every day of the season, uh, I, I have a, a strong belief that uh, QDMA can educate you on, um, you know, a variety of topics that, you know, revolve around your passion, the passion of deer hunting. So, uh, something to definitely take into consideration. Now, a lot of people, when it comes to an organization like that, you know, the QDMA, I don't know 
how big it is, but you guys have cost, right? Some of these other um, organizations are big time organizations that are like, uh, oh, well, we we only give a certain amount of the dollar back to actual conservation. The rest of it goes to paying the employees. Now, I know that the QDMA has staff. They have to pay their staff. They have to pay for, you know, costs and stuff like that. But when someone buys a membership, what does that money go to? Uh, you know, it's, it's, I don't know the breakdown specifically. I know that that information is out there. Um, and one of the reasons I do know that it's out there is we, we, we go through a program called charity navigator. So whenever you're given back to an organization, say DU, NWTF or Rocky Mountain Elk or ourselves, um, there's an organization, there's a, there's somebody that oversees that and basically, you know, kind of goes through your books, uh, so to speak and sees where that money is put into. And we just got a four star rating, uh, through charity navigator within the last month or so, which is one of the highest in the conservation orgs. Um, I think it was, might've been Rocky mountain elk was like 89% or 89 points. And we were 88.5, something like that. But, uh, you know, we're, we're really up there as, as a four star, which is the highest level you can get. Um, right. I don't know the exact breakdown, but I can tell you this. Uh, we're at 60,000 members, give or take a few, um, and we operate with less than 40 full-time employees. Um, you know, so we run extremely lean, sometimes too lean. Uh, there's just not enough of us to get all the work done. But uh, we do that, you know, on purpose. Uh, we don't ever want somebody to be able to say, you know, hey, we're giving to you guys and, you know, you're, you're misspending the money or anything like that. I can assure you that uh, probably all of our employees from the top down are overworked and underpaid, <laughs> uh, but most of, them, most of them are okay with that. Uh, you know, speaking for myself, you know, I can't imagine working anywhere else in the deer world. I, I come from the industry, I guess. It's just been in my blood since I've been a young kid, and I love what I do, man. It's uh, sometimes I have to pinch myself when I wake up, you know, and, and, and then, man, I'm working you know, for the white-tailed deer. I mean, pretty much everything I've done throughout my life has revolved around that in some way, shape or form, whether, you know, from the hunting side, the archery side, you know, to now what I'm doing. Um, I wish I had the answer, you know, Hey, I could tell you, you know, $2 here, $5 there. I don't have that, but I can promise you we operate pretty lean and, and for the most part it goes where it needs to go. Other than, you know, obviously we have to keep the lights on and, uh, you know, uh, pay the water bill and such, but, uh, we by no means live high on the hog. <laughs> right. And that math is crazy that you said you have roughly 60,000 members and 40 under 40 full-time employees. That's like 1500 people per employee that, you know, on average that, you know, you're responsible for. So like on average, you're responsible for 1500 people. And that that's mind blowing. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we're in the top five or conservation organizations as far as membership, uh, top four or five, it kind of fluctuates, but there's NWTF, obviously Ducks Unlimited, you know, Pheasants Forever, maybe SCI, Rocky Mountain Elk. Um, right. I, can, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I do know the NWTF, I think, has, you know, 140, 160,000 members and I think, you know, well over 100 employees. Um, you know, so... You know, when I say we operate pretty lean, I know for a fact that we do. I, you know, I, I work I work remotely, but I'm at the home office enough to to, to know what everybody's doing, and and uh, I know how much we travel, 
uh, to get done what we do. And, and, uh, we definitely, I'm kind of proud of that in one aspect. I am matter of fact, I am proud of it. Uh, that sometimes you do go, man, I wish we had, <laughs> I wish we had another 40 employee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so that's your role in QDMA. And before we get into, uh, this is kind of a hodgepodge episode where, um, you kind of, uh, I want to talk a little bit about everything, uh, with you, but, um, before we get into discussing an article that you wrote and a, cause you talked about wind thermals and current at the QDMA uh, convention. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about your time spent at, in uh, competition archery. When, uh, when was that? Uh, man, it seems like a lifetime ago. Um, I started probably when I was about eight years old, um, I did, it's an interesting story, and I'll kind of keep it quick, but I didn't really grow up in a hunting family. Uh, right. you know, my, my dad's side of the family maybe small game hunted a little bit, and every now and again would take the first day of deer season off type of deal. But I just had this undeniable passion, uh, you know, just to be a hunter. I don't, I don't know what it was. Um, looking back and, you know, being in the position I am now and trying to educate and, and get youth involved, I, I really think it's something that's in us. You know, it's kind of born in us, and – I've said before, you watch, you know, young, uh, a group of young kids play hide and seek. It's not something that they really teach. You know, you never really taught your kids how to play hide and seek. They just do it. And I, right. I really feel that that's an early form of hunting, if you will. You know, so I, I think that, that it's in it. I mean, we're hunters and gatherers by nature, you know, maybe 100 years ago. As little as 100 years ago or 50 years ago, you know, your, our ancestors, our grandfathers, we're all hunters. Um, we're still that. It's slowly you know, kind of being, uh, quote unquote, bred out of us, but, you know, there's a lot more opportunity to do other things, but I think it's still there. And it, in me, it was really, it was an undeniable urge, man. I, I just had to, to learn everything I could learn about hunting. I was fascinated with it. And there happened to be a, an archery shop within walking distance of my house where I grew up. And it was this very small shop. I just started hanging out there. Uh, luckily, the owner's son was a year or so younger than me and him and I were buddies and you know he had a bow I couldn't wait to talk my parents into getting me a bow I think for my eighth birthday and you know I just started shooting and um it was all because you know I couldn't wait to go bow hunting uh and at that time you know there wasn't a mentor program you had to be 12 in Pennsylvania to be a bow hunter so you know I had to basically sit the bench for you know I was riding the pond for four years man you know (laughs) flinging my bow in the backyard and uh you know waiting (laughs) waiting for that opening day just to sit the sidelines. I couldn't do it. And, you know, it's a good and bad thing. I think it, it gave me, you know, you know, finally when I was 12, I was able to, you know, pass my hunter safety course and go hunting and, uh, you know, experience, you know, man, I was in the big leagues type of deal. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've I've always struggled with that a little bit with the mentor programs, you know, I always felt there was a sort of an apprenticeship to being a hunter. Like you had to kind of come up through the ranks, and, you know, looking back how I was, I think sitting on the bench, not allowing, you know, you know, being not allowed to hunt really gave me even more of a passion to hunt. And uh, now with, you know, you could take a, a five, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old hunting and, and you're kind of forcing them to do it. And, you know, it's really not their idea. It's more yours. And, you know, I just don't see them getting the same thing out of it as I did. I completely understand it, you know, why we're doing it, but I just kind of think we're just off a little bit there. But, you know, we still have to do it just because, again, the difference being when I was a kid, 
there just wasn't opportunity to do everything else like there is now with the fall balls and soccers and indoor camps of this and that. Um, you know, it's just never ending. So, you know, I, I understand completely why state agencies, you know, offer that. Just It just wasn't there when I was a kid, and, and it made me more anxious. Um, so when I did get to go, you know, boom, I was a bow hunter, and, man, heck, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I just knew I was allowed to do it, so I did it at every chance I got. Like, uh, I look back, and, and it's funny because I still hunt around the same area I did when I was 12. Um, I'm 40 now. So, you know, some of the, some of the areas have developed, but others aren't. And, uh, I have so many memories. You know, I, I wouldn't even change out of my school clothes, you know, camouflage was <laughs> the thing that the camouflage was a thing that I, you know, I couldn't afford that or a tree stand. I didn't have either. And, uh, I mean, I, I just, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I was just doing it. And, you know, I'm just out there. And, and luckily back then there was a lot of deer in Pennsylvania. So, you know, that was a target-rich environment, and I couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. I, I don't even know how many deer I missed as a kid, you know. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking miss. I, you know, it's funny thinking back, and I, I, I don't, you know, my first couple years of bow hunting, I was such a bad shot, I didn't even wound one. Like, I'm, not, I'm saying that in a good way, yeah, but it's kind of funny <laughs> to think if I was even a decent <laughs> shot, I'd hit it you know, somewhere where I wasn't supposed to, but I was so far off and my broadheads <laughs> were flying so bad, you know, it was just, I was just glad to have the opportunity. And, uh, so that kind of led me down the path, you know, two things happened. I wanted to be a better hunter and to be a better hunter, I needed to be a better shot. So I started to learn everything I can learn about trying, you know, being a better hunter. Basically back then I had a subscription to field and stream uh, that my grandpa bought me. And I, I read that, you know, cover to cover. And, you know, I, I used to collect the magazines and I just started shooting my bow more and more often. Uh, you know, at one point I, I developed target panic and I had to fight through target panic. And I started learning as much as I could about a bow and arrow flight and broadheads and, you know, fletching your own arrows and helicals and offsets and it just evolved. Uh, I guess I have a little competitive side to me and, and the, the practice turned into hey, go to this local shoot, go to that local shoot and shooting 3d and I'm shooting indoor. And, you know, before I know it, you know, I'm competing on the national level, uh, the whole time, honestly, in my mind, it was just to be a better bow hunter, uh, you know, cause I, I couldn't hit a deer. Um, but you know, it just turned into that and, you know, fast forward, I guess in, um, 2002, uh, I won the NFAA Indoor Nationals uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, 2005, you know, I, sh- I shot an 899 out of a 900 in Vegas. Um, you know, was, I think I was 11th place or something like that. But that's one of the toughest shoots in the world as far as the indoor circuit's concerned. I sh- you know, co- countless 3D tournaments. Um, you know, West Virginia State Champion, Pennsylvania State Champion. I mean, just I just did. This is what I did. And, uh, you know, kind of got into the tournament side of things. And I remember being interviewed by a magazine at the time. It was 3D Times back then. I don't know. I was, I guess, I don't know, 20 or 21. We're talking 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, they they, kind of called me the tournament archer or whatever. I just want to shoot somewhere. And I I remember, like, the light bulb. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm just a bow hunter, man. I never really (laughs) thought of myself. That's insulting. Yeah, well, well, it wasn't insulting, but I remember, you know, shooting with some of those guys that I thought were really tournament archers and, you know, were a lot better than me. And, uh, 
I was just, you know, at the whole time, I just wanted to be better at shooting deer. Um, honestly, that's how my mindset was. You know, right. it, it was just crazy how it kind of how it kind of worked out. Um, and I had uh, I ended up uh, opening my own archery pro shop. Yeah, you know, started out with one bow line, and, and next thing I know, you know, seven eight years later, I've got eight or ten bow lines in there, and uh, you know. Uh, 25 yard indoor range i think uh, 30 lanes i mean it was it evolved a lot uh, but that kind of had taken me away from the uh the tournament side if you will and a couple with a couple really bad injuries i had a uh, i ended up having a really bad neck issue and a bad shoulder issue and a couple surgeries and that kind of sidelined me so i had a couple you know things that kind of taken me out of the tournament game which you know looking back i kind of regret yeah uh, i didn't take care of my body um you know, I kind of had won a few and got that got in my mind that uh, I was ready to move on, but I uh, kind of wish I'd have stuck with it now. But yeah, hey, everything happens for a reason, you know. Um, it ended me up where I'm at today, and I really couldn't be happier, honestly. Right, absolutely. So, man, I feel like we're going to have to have you on for another podcast already because I want to <laughs> I want to dive into the whole archery game. Uh, as well, but today I really want to get into this article that you wrote about wind, thermals, and current. Now, air currents, yes, yeah, air currents, right? So mm -hmm. I've experienced that firsthand, and mm -hmm. I'm, I want to talk to you about it. But for the the guy listening to this podcast, they sit mm -hmm. in a tree stand and they may or may not know how to play the wind. I'm going to give everybody who's listening the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to say they do know how to play the wind, right? Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is there is a whole lot more going on than just what the weather channel is telling you what the wind direction is. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of fascinating. It really is fascinating and, and it takes off, it takes off into a whole world of its own. Um, kind of like my archery did just to be a better, you know, to be a better shot, to be able to kill deer. Um, I, I wanted to learn everything I could learn about hunting. And at some point, 20 some years ago, my paths crossed uh, Barry and Gene Wenzel. And um, to this day, I'm able to call them my friends. And uh, man, I've really picked their brain over the years. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if you had, arguably, you know, two of the best uh, white tellers that probably ever lived, um, especially for understanding deer movement, understanding, you know, why the deer do what they do, especially in older age class. And I guess it's one thing you have to designate them. I, I, you really notice a difference when you start paying attention to, you know, mature deer versus, you know, immature deer. Uh, I think when they hit three years old, depending on when they were born, but three to four years old, most of the time, three years old, three and a half years old, as we say, uh, something just changes in them. They really become in tune with their surroundings uh, they've survived. They understand what's going on. They really know how to use their senses to their advantage and they just change. Um, that almost to the point that, you know, they could be classified as another species, if you will, three and a half year old buck, especially. Right. Um, so, you know, when I was you know trying to figure out learning everything I could learn about deer, I, you know, my, I crossed the Wenzel's path and, you know, man, they just, they were, they were shooting big deer, before it was cool, man. Like, and not only were they killing big deer before it was cool, they were doing it with a recurve, you know, inside the <laughs> 25 yard line type of deal, you know, they're still doing it. I mean, I just, I just, I literally just talked to him uh, the day before yesterday, Gene anyway. And, 
I mean, you know, he's all you know, 71 years old or 72, whatever he is. I mean, he's pumped up about a buck he got on camera. Like, I mean, he's ready to go. But, right. you know, they're still out there doing it. Um, and, you know, they, they basically at that time, you know, they wanted to learn everything and they kind of passed it off on to me and, you know, tracking bucks backwards in the snow. Uh, you know, one thing I did when I was a kid, you know, I would go out, you know, especially in the late season and jump a buck, know that, you know, take note, I visually see it, that it's a buck. Um, and a lot of times this was after season, but I, instead of following it, I would follow its trail backwards. And when you know it was moving undisturbed, and just, you know, keep mental notes. I didn't really write a lot of stuff down, wrote some stuff down, but I would keep mental notes of, you know, how it used, you know, terrain features with the wind, you know, where it bedded and, and try to figure out why. And at first, it really doesn't make any sense, you know, and then uh, yeah, at the more you do it, you start picking up on things and you have those aha moments um, and you really start to understand the wind. Um, and then, you know, I started to, you know, when you say, you know, you're, you understand the wind and you're talking wind direction and that's when you get up in the morning and you check your favorite website or your, the weather channel, if you will. And it says the wind's blowing out of the West at seven miles an hour. So, you know, where your stand is and the wind's blowing everything from your stand, you know, out of the West to the East. So basically everything to the East is going to smell you. You know, that's probably, you know, the basic understanding of the wind um, but there's definitely, you know, that's wind 101, and there's a definitely the advanced level. Um, you know, the advanced level is the rising and, and falling thermals, uh, the terrain, the structure, you know, and it, 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 it depends, you know, it varies regionally. Um, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I grew up in the mountainous region of Pennsylvania, which we dealt with swirling winds constantly. Uh, you know, I tend, as I'm older now, I tend to high, or hunt, excuse me, hunt higher on the hill to get a more steady wind, um, rising and fall, falling thermals, uh, you know, and, and all of that. And air currents is basically the winds coming out of the West, but the current could be, you know, especially in a, in a, a mountainous region or a region that has a lot of terrain features, uh, the, the wind blowing, you know, out of the direction that it's coming from could hit a clump of trees, a rock, uh, a hillside, and basically, you know, create an eddy, if you will, just like water in a, a stream or a river, you know, when it hits a rock or a fallen log in the water and it creates an, uh, an eddy, it's basically like a little bit of perpetual motion, if you will, but it swirls. And uh, I mean, that can wreak havoc on you. And I remember the first time that I, I, I witnessed that, you know, I, I guess I had a pretty good understanding of wind direction at that point, And the wind was supposed to be out of the north. And, you know, I'm set up on the south side of where I think the deer is going to travel. So the wind from the north, you know, blowing my scent to the south, I'm assuming all the deer are going to be north of me. There's no way they can smell me. And I, I'll never forget it was uh, a, a, a mature doe. I assumed her last year's fawn and two fawns from this year. So four deer. And they're to the north of me with the wind out of the north. They're about 50 yards. And, and she almost turned inside out. And I'm thinking there's no way, you know, that, that deer smelled me. The wind, you know, I got my little my little puffer and I'm blowing it and, you know, the wind's going to the south. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And, you know, the puffers at that point, I, you know, they go 10 feet and you can't, you know, you kind of can't see them. And, you know, I use milkweed now and that goes a little further. I can see it for 20, 25 yards. But I had went back there and um, I had built a, I built a fire right on my platform. Uh, since then, I... Uh, 
a lot of people ask me, how do I do it? Uh, because I, I've built a lot of fires over time. Uh, and you have to think of yourself on stand uh, as a fire, basically. I mean, you're putting off scent the whole time you're there. It's just you don't put off one puff of scent. I mean, you're, you're there. You're in existence in that spot, and you create a smell. I kind of think it dissipates the longer you're there, but um, you definitely create a smell just like a fire would have smoke the whole time right. it's, it's burning. So, you know, you, if you think of yourself as a fire and you think of the smoke as your scent and then try to change your thought process of your smoke as scent into water in a stream. So your air current is just like water current. So what is your scent, scent doing? And at the time, it's like, how can I visually see that? And it was smoke and a fire. So, you know, I would build fires. And um, I built a lot of fires when I was younger. My mom thought I was crazy. Uh, but, <laughs> I mean, and, and you know, you know, to, even till today, she'll say that you know I'm full of useless information. You know, but it depends who you're asking, I guess, at this point. But uh, right. <clears throat> so I would build these fires, and I would I would study the, the smoke. And in that instance, where I was talking about the wind coming out of the north, you know, the winds from the north, the deer the deer were to the north. I mean, and you know, the, like I say, the mama though about turned inside out when she was got 50 yards from me what was happening was I was just down over a ridge line and the wind was, you know, my scent or the smoke was going, you know, to the South for about 30 yards. And it was basically catching this ridge line. And I speak with my hands, so you can't see me, but I'm doing the, the, the thing with my hands right now, but it was <laughs> catching this ridge line and it was basically eddying just like water in a stream. And as it eddied, it would just swirl around and it was, you know, basically almost building momentum and it swirled around completely back around in front of me. And that smoke from the fire on the platform of my stand ended, ended up back to the north. And, you know, what it, w- it would just basically, you know, recreate that process. So the longer my fire was there and, you know, the more smoke I had, the more my area was tainted with scent, if you will. Uh, it right. just basically stayed right there. And that's on a day where, you know, you have a little bit of a heavy air. Um, you know, if, if you understand, you know, if you've driven down the road in the wintertime and I always pay attention to people's fireplaces or their chimneys and you have those beautiful, you know, bluebird mornings and, and, you know, nice cold crisp morning in November, December, and you see somebody's fire in their, in their home, you know, coming, the smoke coming out of the chimney and it goes straight up in the air, you know, for a hundred feet, almost like it's in a stovepipe. I mean, that's a perfect day. You know, that pressure is just allowing that smoke to go straight up in the air. And that's exactly what your scent's doing. And then in reverse, those heavy air days, I call them a colder, heavier day, which most of the time have deer on their feet, but it, it traps that air or that smoke or your scent down to the ground. So when you build a fire, you know, that smoke just kind of smolders around, you know, 30, 40 feet off the ground or sometimes, you know, extremely low to the ground. Um, you know, that's when you have a problem. And that, those are the days that you end up getting busted, you know, more often than not. Uh, you know, so that's, you know, wind direction when you're talking about the air currents and it catching an eddy. I've done it with, I've seen it, you know, a clump of trees uh, basically split the wind. So, you know, I'll just use the example, the wind out of the north going to the south and a, a group of trees to the south would basically act like, you know, anything in the water in a stream and it would split you know, the current and the current would go off to the left side and to the right side and then eddy off of it on each side. So then you would have, 
I, mean, I literally saw smoke in certain instances eddying off of each each side, you know, of those clump of trees. Rocks do it, hillsides do it, all sorts of things. Um, again, every property is different, you know, but the idea is is to, you know, if you're really serious about it and you're hunting the same property, you know, study these areas and know what your property does. Know what it does from, if you've got a tree stand 100 yards from another one, you know, test it at both areas and see what it does. I, I've created overlays for my topographical maps, you know, wind overlays, and I can see you can create a pattern, you know, on heavy air days when, when uh, you know, you're, you're, the, the, the thermals are holding holding your scent low to the ground and, and you build those fires on those types of days, you create a pattern and you, you can visually see it if you do it, you know, with an overlay. Um, right. That's speaking on, you know, wind direction and wind current. And then you have rising and falling thermals. Um, I spoke about that at convention. I've, you know, I've written about it. I spoke about it at convention and I was coincidentally just after convention and I'm going to do a short video that we're going to put on social media because I took some really really cool pictures but uh, it was a week or so after convention and uh, it was of an evening and i was in my backyard and i live in an agricultural area and i have a pasture field just behind my house uh i don't know four or five hundred yards i guess and actually a person i went to high school with lives about a half a mile uh like to the northeast of me and this pasture field is northwest of me and the wind this evening was out of the southwest, due, almost due west, but southwest, kind of south-southwest. And um, he had built a fire, and I noticed that he had a fire. I'm not talking a half mile from me, and it was a heavy air of an evening, right? And, you know, this is prime time for most bow hunters of an evening. And I could see his fire and his smoke. It wasn't getting, you know, but 50 feet off the ground. It was just laying so low. And what it was doing, there was hardly any breeze. It was one of those evenings. I, I did check it. And I mean, it was zero miles per hour. So it was one of those calm, cool, you know, evenings. One as a bow hunter, you know, really looking for it. And I hurry up and I jumped in my truck and I, I went up the road and I took a picture. He had a fire in the burn barrel. And I took a picture of the smoke about 100 yards from the fire. And again, He's to the northwest, so you have to try to picture this. He's to the northwest. The wind's out of the south-southwest, maybe switching a little bit to the do, you know, out of the west. And the smoke was coming to the southeast. I mean, it literally should not have done that, right? But what right. it was doing, it was heavy air. It was the, the heavier, colder temperatures, the falling thermals of an evening, you know, were keeping that, that scent or that smoke low to the ground, and then the smoke was acting just like water. The air wasn't strong enough to move it. Air, a low air current won't move heavy air. I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced of that. Heavy air is air with moisture in it of a, you know, of falling temperatures, uh, or excuse me, falling thermals and you know, a heavy moisture air, that pressure system. And uh, you have to have a you know, fairly substantial wind to move that. But if you don't, that scent or that smoke of like this fire was basically just following the contour of the ground as if it were water. And the lowest point between my house and his is that pasture field right against the woods about 400, 500 yards from my house. And I came back in my truck and I took a picture from my backyard at that point. And that's where all of that smoke was just pulling up. Right. And, at any given time throughout the summer, 
if I want to see deer of an evening, you know, right at dark from my house, all I have to do is look at that pasture field, and that's where the deer come out. Now, you, as a bow hunter, if you're scouting from long range, you see deer come out there, you think, well, that's where I need my deer, my tree stand, and that's where they're coming out. Reason being, you know, deer have adjusted. They know, you know, where they can come out low in a field. They, they understand, you know, through hundreds of years of evolution, I think, they understand how they, they that's their safety net. They know where those spots are. They know how they can feed with their, their eyes facing the ground, their nose down, and those those heavy air falling thermal days basically funnel all this all the scent to them, right? So it's a safety net. They can feed in comfort. And if you want to do feed from a distance, they you know their heads down every now and again they look up and especially a mature buck, if you find those mature bucks, they usually feed within a 20 or 30 acre circle. They don't move very much. And, you know, I'm willing to bet a lot of those reasons are it's probably the lowest area around of an evening. And that's an area where, you know, the, 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 the thermals naturally funnel the surrounding scent to them. So they may not necessarily be looking for you, but it may be a coyote. It could be anything, but they're using their nose, you know, to save their, their backside, so to speak. And, you know, while they're feeding, um, it's really interesting when you when you really start to put it all together. Uh, you know, as I say, you, it may come to you at three in the morning. You know, so many times you wake up with those aha moments, like, oh my goodness, now I understand. Uh, you know, what was going on? Why that deer was moving across the ridge the way he did, or you know, why he didn't. You know, I like to think. You know, we we do a lot of shows uh, through TDMA, and I, I talk to a lot of hunters. You know, and you, you have you know a lot of times. You know, that buck was you know downwind of me and the wind was blowing from me to him and he didn't smell me. And, you know, it, you know, I, you know, that's because of this or because of that. Well, it may have been, but it also may have been that it's one of those days, like I touched on earlier, where, you know, it's one of those, you know, blue, bluebird days and, and the, the thermals, you know, are basically carrying your scent, you know, straight up in the air in the stovepipe type of deal and over top of their nose. Uh, and in reverse, when, you know, that deer shouldn't smell you and does, you know, it could be like the, the scenario I explained earlier, an eddying situation, or it could be those thermals are, are, are low to the ground, you know, being held down by heavy air. The wind, the current itself isn't strong enough to move them away, so it follows the contour of the ground and it ends up right to them type of deal. So there are a lot of reasons why, you know, a deer does or does not smell you. And when you start understanding, you know, putting all that together, you know, it really opens your eyes to a whole whole other world. And I mean, I, I can say that my mature buck sightings, you know, in hunting season, once I started to figure this out, uh, and I'm by no means an expert. I, I learn every year, every, you know, throughout the year, I'm thinking about it. I, I watch the wind and the thermals and, uh, you know, I'm a constant student of it, but, uh, my, my mature buck sightings has definitely, you know, went up and I say mature bucks, you know, I'm talking, you know, within bow range, you know, where where it counts type of deal um, once I started paying attention to that stuff. Right. So so you talked about this heavy air and this lighter air where, uh, you know, we're, we're using the analogy that we are a fire, right, and our fire, and our fire has smoke. Um, so does the barometric pressure then also play a role? on because you know a lot of people will say oh the barometric pressure if high barometric pressure triggers 
uh, deer movement. So do you think that there is a correlation between what high pressure does to thermals and wind and air current and that is why the deer are moving and not necessarily just some magical, hey, high pressure causes deer movement? Yes. Um, um, yes. The, the, to answer, the easy answer is yes, I absolutely think so. Um, do, am I extremely versed in exactly not yet, but kind of enough? I, I, you know, I've, uh, the, bar- the barometric pressure definitely does affect deer movement. Um, and I do keep notes and I, you know, I'm kind of like, this is kind of the off season. I'm more versed in it. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> first of December than I am the, the, the end of August, but, um, definitely, you know, when that, when that pressure is rising, uh, and falling. So it's the drastic change. It's not so much, okay, it's rising, you know, going to tree stand, uh, or it's falling. It's that, it's that big change, if you will, when it stays even, you know, for, you know, two or three days in a row, it seems like that the deer movement falls off. But whenever you have that big spike one way or the other, um, you know, it, it, it definitely spikes movement for sure. Now, uh, I know, you know, that, 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 uh, we all look for that cold spell, you know, that first north wind or that first cold snap in, in the bow season gets deer on their feet. And I know last year, last year and the year before, uh, interesting enough, you know, my camera, um, you know, daylight activity of my cameras on mature bucks were just, you know, popping, uh, like I remember October 17th, October 19th, when, you know, a lot of times you think you're hitting that, that October law, as some people say, but, you know, we had that, we had those, those jolts in the barometric pressure one way or the other, and it just got deer on their feet. And I remember last year specifically, you know, watching the, the temperature across the radar, you know, I was in, I hunt, you know, Western Pennsylvania and then Eastern Ohio. And, our, you know, you see social media and you see big bucks falling, you know, in Iowa and Illinois and, and you know, Indiana and just coming this way with the, the pressure systems. Um, you know, I, I like to, I, I like those north winds, um, you know, after a south, but, you know, I also like, you know, you get a few north winds and you get that first south after a north, it seems, boom, there they go again. So, uh, it's always, you know, being a tree stand, but the north wind, I think more so for me, isn't so much the the wind out of the north. If you, if you can get a north wind with that, that, that bump in the barometric pressure, the north wind generally brings colder temperatures, which I think temperature, you know, trumps everything. You know, if you get that, that bump in, in barometric pressure, but it's 75 degrees, deer just aren't moving. You know, it's just, it's just a, a kind of a dull day. They will move. I mean, especially of an evening or of a morning you know, first light, last light type of deal. But, uh, you know, that, 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 if you can get that bump in the barometric pressure coupled with, I like a northern wind, which brings colder temperatures. I really think you're setting yourself up for success that day. Like, you know, get in a stand type of deal. But, uh, anytime, anytime I know that that, that pressure is going to change, regardless of the wind after, a, you know, if it's a steady south for two or three days or steady west for two or three days and you get that change and something's going to happen, it seems like deer, deer movement, deer sightings, everything just goes up. And I've really been paying attention to the cameras as of late and, uh, you know, going, looking back at uh, photos and then correlating it with, um, you know, wind direction. I check the wind direction every morning throughout the hunting season. So I look at the wind direction and then you really start to see patterns of certain deer doing certain things. 
Um, unfortunately, you know, I, I don't live in an area. I live in a very high pressure area, so I don't think I get a true reading of what an actual deer. Like I'll have a deer show for two or three days and be gone, and you know, think maybe think something happens, but it could be uh, he got bumped by the neighbor that's hunting. Or I mean, I, I deal with a lot of hunters, so. I don't get a, a true feel for what a deer is doing undisturbed, if you will. So they're kind of in survival mode, you know, about the second or third week of October. They, they've been bumped <laughs> around a little bit. So, um, you know, and I hunt a lot of structure for that reason. Um, I think there, you know, I listen to a lot of other people's and uh, talk about it and I've read a lot. Um, you know, what, what is a, structure? A, well, the structure. So there's a big difference. I think if you, you know, a lot of people, you know, seek out and find one specific, deer and they hunt that deer whether it be an older age class you know four-year-old five-year-old six-year-old you know they have them named anymore you know you know we're you know high tower or, you know the wide one whatever and they're hunting a specific deer so when you're hunting a specific deer you're basically now you have to pattern that deer you know know his habits his surroundings you know the, the whole deal inside and out so you're really honed in on that and you know hopefully you don't have the pressure that you know some of us other hunters have i mean i hunt a farm that allows other people to hunt so i have to deal with that you know there's a lot of variables there for for me to find a specific deer you know, i'm not saying it can't be done i mean you just really have to pay attention to the details but what i do is um you know i put myself in a situation where i know i don't shoot them my my general rule of thumb is they have to be three years old or older for me to shoot them so i know how a mature deer likes to move and they use structure to their advantage as they get older they tend to get lazy um you know they take the path of leaf resistance uh you know they're smarter they use ridges and hill sizes to catch the the rising thermals of a morning and i'll explain a little bit about rising thermals basically you know as the sun comes up it heats the earth's atmosphere and the earth stores heat or energy and hot air rises you know faster than cold air so when the sun comes up and heats the earth, the air, the, the earth is basically putting off a little bit of heat. And, you know, it's a mirage type of deal that you can't see that that's rising up through the air, which will carry, you know, your scent with it. Uh, most mature bucks, I think, move of a morning higher on the ridge tops, you know, where they can basically scent check an area. And I'm talking again in that seeking phase of the rut, if you will, when they're up on their feet, you know, in the daylight, moving around, trying to find a receptive doe there's areas or places you can put yourself to intercept those deer if you understand how they're using the structure to get around from one ridge to the next or from a, a, a feeding area to a bedding area or even you know from one farm to the next um i always go on google earth and i know the farms that i'm hunting inside and out but i also know you know the neighbor's ridges uh, and i know their their thickets and, and their their fields and how deer move back and forth so i may not be hunting a specific deer but the deer that i see that morning he may have been i mean you know there's a chance he was a mile and a half or two miles away you know two hours before um right. you know he just uses that structure to get around and check those doe groups uh and and that's how i think it's more beneficial to me to hunt that way to be successful because i can't necessarily I don't have it to where I don't say I don't have it. I, I I've tried to do it before. I, you know, seek out one deer, you know, find it, and uh, you know, try to to hunt that deer. And I'll tell you, last year was a perfect example. I had found one deer uh, that I had let walk the year before. He was a 
he was a three-year-old the year before, so he was a four-year-old last year, and he showed up on my cameras, and, you know, he got more lazy. He was literally staying within 50 acres, and I had six cameras in 50 acres, and, I mean, he was just, just blowing it up. I called him One-Eyed Jack. I actually did name that one, and the really cool story as a three-year-old, I was actually hunting. I had my son with me. Uh, he was eight at the time. It wasn't. He was just sitting with me. We had a, I have a two-man ladder stand with the middle section had taken out of it, and uh, in a really good spot on this interior logging road, just above this thicket, and I had a, a clover plot about you know 100 yards out the ridge a little bit. And um, you know, early October, these bucks just lay scrapes on this interior logging road. You know, they kind of stage there before they go out to this clover field and. This buck, I mean, you know, he literally walks out, you know, 10, 11 yards. He was a three-year-old and, and let him go. And <clears throat> there was a, a couple other bucks out towards the you know, year and a half old bucks out towards the, the clo- in between me, myself, and the clover. So they were about 50 yards. And a little fight broke out, and the three-year-old eight-point had run over there, and they got to chasing each other around. And, and this little six-point, uh, you know, the year and a half old six-point chased the, the three-year-old buck back underneath of us and they got into a fight and it, it literally the the young buck gouged the older buck's eye out uh, i mean i watched it right there it was to I me mean, boom wow. and uh yeah his eyeball was literally when he ran past me i could see his eyeball hanging out and then i got a trail camera picture of him two nights after the eyeball was still there and i got a trail camera picture of him the next night and it had fallen off um so he lost his eye and you know he was probably he was a three-year-old at, you know 125 128 you know i'm in pennsylvania so you know that's about what they are at three um so i was hoping that he made it and he did he made the gun season and i instantly get pictures of him you know when i got the cameras out the next year which had been last year and that's the buck i wanted to hunt and he was uh i had really like kind of for the first time like you know set my sights on him and like i said he got more lazy he was literally staying within 50 acres um and I was just waiting. I needed I needed that first cold snap. And, you know, early October, I was, you know, it was south, southwest, southeast, south, southwest, 70 degrees, 75 degrees. And, I mean, it was – it was. I had one cold snap early that I wasn't able to hunt. Um, I had work obligations, and, you know, I was kind of – I missed the deal. And, you know, I'm still waiting for, you know, end of October, 1st of November. And it, it came, you know, Halloween comes, and – it's warm southerly winds and not much going on and you're just chomping at the bit and it was november 3rd last year uh i think i hunted that morning and it was southerly and it was switching like at two o'clock to north and i had a stand set about uh i guess a mile from where this buck was showing up and it was in a really good spot that i'd always wanted to hang a set and i just never had just for whatever reasons and I thought, well, okay, it was for North Wind. I said, I'll hunt that of an evening, you know, just kind of put my time in type of deal. And it was going to be north again in the morning, and it was that bump in the pressure. And, man, I was ready to go. I had, you know, I had, uh, I think, five stands in around that 50 acres. And, I mean, that's that's my home court, man. He was playing on my field at that point. And um, I was just anxious to get in there. But, you know, the 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 night before, that, that, that northerly of an evening, I ended up seeing a, a five-year-old buck that I'd never even seen before. Um, and, you know, as he's coming, I'm looking at this deer, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's a big buck. And uh, I'd never seen him, you know, and it was kind of like, you know, man, he's, he's coming right down the chute here. 
And, you know, I, he was, you know, inside of 25 yards and hadn't even picked my bow up off the, the hanger yet because I was kind of – I had my mind made up that I wanted to shoot the one-eyed deer. And, you know, this buck gets 25 yards and, and closing fast. And I'm like, geez, I, this is – I can't let this go. And I uh, ended up shooting him at, you know, 10 or 11 yards type of deal. And I'd never seen him before. It was just one of those deals. And he was up on his feet, you know, moving. Of, you know, that I think that pressure system just got him. And he was probably from the neighbors. Or he, he definitely – I had no pictures of him on, on us, uh, you know, up until then. That was the first I'd ever saw him. So, I, you know, there I did. I, I punched my tag and uh, had to, you know, sit the sidelines. And then, of course, one eye Jack, you know, he just – he just basically pranced around all throughout November. Uh, I had literally moved some of my cameras to my stands just to see. And I don't know, you know, he, he was, you know, within 10 yards of a couple of my stands in daylight, you know, a couple different times. Um, and it worked out to where I was hoping that, you know, he made it through bow season. I had pictures of him like around Thanksgiving. Uh, our gun season comes in the Monday after Thanksgiving. And, man, I have my fingers crossed. It's only 10 days. And I'm friends with a neighbor, and he had known that I was hunting that deer. And uh, he's actually a QDMA member and a deer steward, too, grad. Um, he he called me, uh, I think, the first, first Thursday of gun season and said, I'll send you a picture, see if it looks like you, know, you can recognize this buck. And he sent me a picture, and, of course, it was, it was one-eyed Jack. He had been over on him feeding him one of his clover plots. And he actually felt bad uh, because he said it had his good eye to him. <laughs> And had he had he known, he wouldn't have shot it. And I'm like, man, that's that's what they're there for. I don't feel bad. And uh, you know, he was he was a, you know he was a nice buck. You know, it was a it was a four before you know mid 140. So it, that's nice anywhere. Um, but anyway, I kind of uh, went on there. But you know, just that's the uh, that I hunt the structure. Uh, it paid off last year. Um, I was trying to hunt a, uh, a specific deer, and I was just waiting for the right opportunity, and it. It just worked out that I think the structure put a deer in front of me. Right. All right. So now I want to I want to give you a scenario, and I want uh, you to tell me how you would approach it. All right. So I hunt in a really big valley, and each va- this valley has draws coming up out of the bottom of it, and they they come to the top, right, and on the top of the mm-hmm. ridge. Um, and they lead to uh, they lead to a variety of places. They lead to ag. They lead to uh, pasture. But I have one, and I found this place two years ago, and I put a trail camera there, and I was getting just a ton of midday, like early, like mid morning, midday movement. You know, bucks cruising from one part of the farm to the next through this little area. I set up in it the first year and my I, I drop one of those uh, wind trackers and it, it's not smoke so you can see it go with the wind and it I dropped it out of my tree stand and I watched it basically just float right so there's what I'm assuming is where it was floating was where the cold air and the warm air met. And it just basically, like a tide, came back and forth and back and forth. And it just went up the draw, and it went down the draw, and it went up the draw. And I watched that thing come back and forth in front of me for three hours that morning. Then as the sun got higher and it got warmer, it it all – it's like the bottom broke out 
and it sucked everything off the top and then it the like the the wind actual wind direction started coming into effect so it started sucking everything down into the valley and then out the bottom of the valley but what i noticed was when i dropped this exactly what you mentioned there was an there was places where that would eddy and that that little wind tracker that i dropped would get to a little location and it would spin for a while almost like until that area like like a cup right you overfill it with water then it spills out and it goes away so it came to this little eddy it spun around for a while and then it just would come like kind of a little a little faster would leave that area and go down now using and i know i left out what i said was very vague uh but using your principles to try to figure out how to hunt that location because I was getting busted all the time coming in and out of there uh, because my my scent was was going up and down. There was never a consistent – I never had anything consistent to set up off, off of. So to your best knowledge, how should somebody approach a location where they are having difficulties – find you know finding the right wind whether that is a consistent wind direction a thermal or a current well a couple things um when you say you have a valley with fingers run off you know you're hunting the fingers i'm assuming but which direction you know the valley's running east to west north south yep. and what direction was your wind um coming right. from when that was happening and the next thing is there water around? Is there streams around? I think you're in Iowa, right? Right. Um, and a lot of those valleys have, you know, those small tributaries or streams that run through them. Yep. Um, so that can affect. So a couple things. Um, access is it, how you get in and out of your tree stand is the second most important thing, I think, that's overlooked by hunters. When it, First, obviously, being the wind currents the wind direction and the rising and falling thermals and what they're doing, but the access of how you're getting to your stand to and from your stand. Um, when I say undetected, I'm not really talking about deer seeing you visually, uh, but you have to take into consideration of from the time you leave you know, your truck, where you're parking, you know, what those, that, those thermals and air currents, you know, where it's carrying your wind, if it's carrying your scent into the area you're going to hunt, you know, man, you're doomed. Um, it's it's definitely the, the the second most important thing of understanding. So those fingers that come off of those those valleys, and if those valleys have water in it, the next thing you have to pay attention to, and I found especially out in the Midwest, when you have those real deep draws, like they're not what I would consider like hillsides, but you know basically the the stream has carved a, a you know carved out a really deep steep slope. That cold water can actually can play have an effect on thermals so that cold water will if you are standing down by those streams pay attention that the air seems cooler down there and it will have the reverse effect even well into the morning hours like a, a say nine or ten o'clock when you think that the sun's up and the thermals are rising that if that cold water coming from the earth uh, coming from the ground that's been you know cool uh pay attention those are really cool areas to do your your, your air current test and watch what, how that water, that cold air affects, um, affects the, the scent or your, you know, your, your, uh, your air current. It'll actually have a, a, 
a, a, a negative effect, if you will. It had the reverse effect of rising thermal. The cool air acts in reverse, and the closer you get to that water, you'll find that your scent is actually being held down. And that's probably what you were seeing when you said you would that that you know your little scent checker thing. You was you know kind of hovering around, going back and forth. It creates like a vacuum. Um, I, I had one of those aha moments. Uh, it's not exactly the same scenario you're talking about, but uh, I had it a few times. Uh, again, on this ridge, I'm trying to explain it to where you can understand it. it was a, a, a ridge that ran east to west. Off to the northeast was what I called it. I really called it a bedding area. I called it an area that they held doe groups. So, uh, every time I had went through there, like shed hunting or whatever, I'd bump a bunch of deer out of there, and I just made a mental note to it. And this ridge ran in, pretty much due east to you know west to east type of deal. And there was a drainage that came out, or a seepage, if you will, quarter of the way down from the top, uh, just you know, just off the south side of that northeastern uh, little doe group area type of deal. And over time, I watched buck movement from a distance go at an angle uh, up up that ridge. And uh, like I say, those bucks are they're um, they're lazy. You know, they would not cross that seepage. They would go around the top of it and then, you know, swoop back down in. And they would do that of a morning. So to the northeast of them on a northerly wind, which is I was looking for because north winds to me bring cooler air currents. It would actually, the, the rising thermals would catch catch the, the, the deer coming up the ridge. And those bucks would catch to be able to scent check that doe group. So I was actually sitting there one morning and the thermals were i thought were rising and the deer you know i'm waiting for these deer to come you know up the ridge type of deal and they're coming up the ridge and the next thing i know you know they get within again 50 yards of me to the north of me and they turn inside out and i'm like you know how's this happening what's going on well what it was was the sun hadn't come up high enough you know it was 8 30 in the morning so the sun you know of november rises you know, more southerly than easterly. So that part of the northern, northern, northern facing slope wasn't catching any therm, any sun, no heat at all. So the thermals were actually working in reverse where just, you know, just south of me where the sun was actually hitting the ground, my thermals, you know, they were going straight up in the air. But where I was, it was acting of an evening. The, 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 the north slope, you know, the north face, like the jackets keeps you warm. The north face is always the coldest. That north face hadn't caught the morning sun yet. So it was actually working in reverse. So what was happening was, you know, those deer were catching my my ther- my falling thermals. You know that my my scent was falling to the ground and falling the, the earth's contour. You know, down the ridge, you know, into the valley to the north of me because the breeze wasn't stiff enough to move it, and you know I was getting busted. So once I figured that out, I would I actually to this day I hunt a stand. Um, you know, I guess a hundred yards from there south until about 9 30 and then i move over to that one around 9 30 20 to 10 you know early november the sun's high enough where the rays get to that side of the, the north face of that slope and your thermals actually you know go again and i've shot deer there you know 10 30 in the morning i just got in the stand at you know quarter till and at 10 30 you know it the thermals are going up you know everything's working perfectly you know they're able to scent check that doe area uh, with the rising thermals and I don't get busted and you know they use that drainage I mean it, it's 13 yards from the stand around that top of that drainage and I mean it's almost like cheating man like you know you kind of got to you know call the taxidermist <laughs> type of deal once you once you put it all together um right 
So, you know, in, in, in the scenario that you're talking about, I'm trying to follow along. It's hard to not, you know, without seeing it, but a couple things, you know, whether it's running east to west, east to west, north or south, and those fingers coming off, if you're just down over and there's water close to you, I would bet that that water is keeping the air temperature a little cooler around you, which is in turn uh, having, uh, having a, a reverse effect on your thermals. A couple things I would do, and there are certain instances when you said, you know, I get busted, what do I do? There are some spots I just don't hunt. Um, the more I learn about thermals and rising and falling currents, I realize there are areas that I just can't put it in my favor. And, you know, you're playing the odds type of deal. I don't think there, especially where I hunt in Pennsylvania, I don't think there's an area that stays constant forever. So you have to play the odds that, you know, 70% of the time that, you know, this area is in my favor. I know a lot of people say, you know, if the wind switches get out of there, that works in some places. But in others, like, you know, I've hunted upstate New York where you've got real steep ridges. The wind's just constantly switching. So if you had to move every time the wind switched, you'd just be running around. I mean, you'd never get any hunting done. Um, right. You know, so you have to find those areas that, for the most part, you know, the odds are in your favor. And there are some areas where it just doesn't work. I have abandoned really good areas, really good inside corners, you know, where a, a thicket meets an old interior fence road. There's, you know, an interior logging road. It just, it all adds up to, you know, man, big bucks going to cruise up here checking this, but the winds swirl and the falling thermals, and it's, you can just never get it right. I have one area in particular that I, I've tried, I think, three different, I had, you know, two ground blind situations and one tree stand, and I just couldn't make it work. It was in the timber. Uh, I, I really felt like, you know, it was in that spot where it was all going to come together. But to this day, I walk past it all the time, and I just I just don't hunt it. Uh, right. I just can't. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and it's just one more thing for the the whitetail freak like us to think about. I, I tell you what, I am every year I put out my trail cameras, and every year you know I I catalog them, and I try to figure out okay what was the wind direction. Um, you know, I got Deer Lab to make that easier for me, but uh, but I'm always thinking, man how do I make this spot work? How do I make spots like this? Not necessarily that spot in general, but every spot, how do I get, how do I make it work to the best of my advantage? And it just all comes back to trial and error. Everything comes back to trial and error. And, you know, if I don't think hunting would be near as fun if we could just walk out into the timber and kill booners every set. I mean, that'd be pretty fun. No, definitely. It, yeah. I mean, that would be fun for a while. Right. But like, it's, <laughs> just like anything else, the more you have to work something, you know, there's that, right. like I said, there, in the beginning, there's that, there's that apprenticeship program type of deal, like where you got to you know, earn your stripes, you know? And, uh, one, the first thing is you got to have fun with it. You know, you can't take it yeah. so serious. Like, Oh, I bumped a deer. I ruined this. Or, you know, you're mad at your buddy or mad at the neighbor you know what, there's always another deer and there's always going to be another season. I mean, you know, for the most part. So the biggest thing is to go out there and have fun with it. Um, you know, my son is 10 now and, you know, he doesn't hunt a whole lot, but he's involved. It, I mean, he does everything else with me from trail cameras to we shoot our bows in the backyard and, you know, I've got him. He, he, he could speak pretty well on thermals and air currents. But, you know, he doesn't really hunt, so I don't force him to hunt. It's just one of those things I think it's kind of going to happen organically. You know, he does everything else. It's just the natural progression at some point, you know, he'll hunt. And he might not. That's okay, too. Um, 
you just just have fun with it is the most important part. But you know what I'm getting at. I, I know you know you said your wife's pregnant. I think you have another child too. You know it's something that you can get everybody involved in. It's it's a year round thing. You know there's there's so much to do out there, and you know deer are one of the best renewable resources there are. There's always going to be more of them the next year. So. Yeah, don't take it too serious if you if you bump that buck, you know. <laughs> it uh I've bumped man plenty of they you know, everybody has bumped bucks. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well I tell you what, Ryan, um I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh hop on with us and uh talk about the QDMA and talk about wind and thermals and current, man. I, I it's definitely something I'm gonna be diving into much deeper in the in the this season. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. I appreciate it. Huge shout out to Ryan for coming on the podcast, man. Uh, thanks for blowing my mind. Huge shout out to each and every one of you guys who make this podcast possible. Thank you very much. Huge shout out to all of the partners of this podcast. Bighorn Outfitters, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, Exodus Trail Cameras, Ozonics, Gearhead Archery, Wasp Archery, Ripcord, Deer Lab, and I think that's going to do it. Please go visit me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, Go to iTunes, subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and uh, keep an eye out for some uh, awesome, exciting news coming from uh, this podcast and this RSS feed. Uh, I think it's going to be, uh, I think you're going to like what's uh, going to happen. Other than that, guys... Go sign up to for the National Deer Alliance. Go be a part of change. Uh, become educated, and uh, you know that's that's how it starts. And then we can, then you can start diving deeper into uh, the conservation model and, and all that good stuff. Other than that, guys, if you're going to be in a tree, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.